0: This message by Zach Varnell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Zach serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning and welcome. You can uh, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're going to continue our series this morning in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 14, we're going to read the first 11 verses. And this is the Word of God. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast. Lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. These are powerful verses for us to look at this morning. But before we do, I wanted to ask you, I wanted to start by asking you a question. Have you ever missed an opportunity? Have you ever found yourself just kicking yourself for missing a moment, an opportunity that you had been given? History is is full of Examples of moments like these. 1876, Alexander Graham Bell creates the telephone and it actually works and he wants to commercialize it and offers to sell the patent to Western Union. They say no. Describe the device as nothing but a toy. They ask the question, why would any person want to use this ungainly and impractical device when he can send a perfectly clear message through the telegraph? These days telegraphs are in museums and phones are in your pocket. It was a missed opportunity. Or the doorbot, what you might know as the ring uh, technology, the doorbell video that goes to your smartphone when people come to your front door at your house and you can interact with them on your smartphone. When that was pitched on Shark Tank, none of the investors bought in, thinking no one'd be interested. It wouldn't last. The owner walked out empty-handed of that. Episode, it was one year later, the company sold for over a billion dollars. It was a missed opportunity for sure. But it's not just the world of business, is it? It's our own lives too. I can't tell you how many times I've just missed opportunities Uh, due to my negligence or ignorance or selfishness or whatever. I asked my wife in preparing this message if she had any examples for me missing moments. Thinking, she'd say, I'd love to think about that and get back with you. Not expecting the 12 that immediately (laughs) came to her mind, but the highlight, the worst, was our honeymoon. I took a fly rod on our honeymoon. We went to Acadia National Park, Bar Harbor, Maine, and one of the days we were there, we drove up to see Baxter uh, State Park, who's an hour and a half away from our cabin. It's the northern end of the Appalachian Trail, so pretty exciting. I found some water, and I began to fish. Well, it started to get late, and Sarah had just finished the last of our supplies, a leftover piece of bagel. And she came to me, and uh, because she had a steak dinner planned at the cabin, she came to me and Asked if we could leave. It was getting late, you know, it was taking too long. And I said, sure, babe, just one more cast. Which every fisherman knows out there what that means. An hour later, when I got back into the car, Sarah was a bit upset. It was our honeymoon. I was an idiot. I missed an opportunity to show her I love her more than fishing. Well, something similar is going on in our text this morning. I mean, it's an incredible, this is an incredible story. This is truly an historic moment. But, but with everything these days being called historic or epic or unprecedented, it makes it hard to communicate the weight of what's happening in this text we're looking at today. But in verse 9, Jesus makes it clear. This is something truly historic when he said wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. No other human receives such commendation from Jesus. He erects this memorial for her who did her best, who did what she could to honor him. The disciples were there, and they were witnessing something profound, and they totally missed it. Well, I don't want to miss it this morning. As I've been thinking about this text just for my own heart and for us as a church, I don't want to miss this. I-, I think this text this morning, us together on the live stream, this is a God-given moment for us. To be affected by this, to be changed by this. And not only by this woman's example, but by Jesus' response to her. I think, the, I think the main point and intent of this text this morning is because of His extravagant love for us. Let's do what we can. Let's be looking for opportunities to express extravagant gratitude to Him. He's worthy of that. D.A. Carson's a, an author and a professor. And he's known for saying, my students don't always remember what I teach. But what they remember most is what, whatever I get most excited about. In our text, what we see is what this woman values most. We, we also learn what Jesus values most and so we want that to shape what what do we value most our text it's a mark in sandwich we've talked about this before the text begins where with um, verses 1 and 2 and ends with verses 10 and 11 with this opposition that Jesus is facing and what's in the middle what's in the middle of the sandwich gives us the main point well what's happening is in chapter 14 is that there's a slowing down in the narrative. The author, who, who we've learned his favorite word is immediately, immediately, immediately. He's slowing down here. Why? Because the cross is coming into view. Last week in chapter 13, we soared to these, this future reality of the return and the reign of our Savior, but this week, chapter 14, we are back in the very real and the very present fallen world. So number one, the top and the bottom of this sandwich, his enemies desire to destroy him. Verse one, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. These guys are still at it. They have been for a while. They are conniving. Their their hatred for Jesus, these are the religious leaders, their hatred for Jesus has only continued to mount as he's thwarted their traps and he's answered their questions and he's taught with authority and he's put them to shame. And so they are resolved. There's no turning back now. They're going to take him out. And at this point, it is only his popularity among the people that's keeping them from doing what they are dead set on doing. They're afraid of what the people might do. The, the context of what's going on right here, it tells us in verse 1, is the Passover celebration. It's one of the most important feasts and celebrations for the Jewish people. It was their national holiday. It it commemorated God's salvation of the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. When through the sacrifice of a lamb for each individual household, God passed over His people when He struck down the firstborn of Egypt. It's what led to their deliverance. And so it was a huge celebration. It was so important. And, and so many people would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem to be there for it. And I know it might be hard to imagine or remember bringing this back to mind in our season. But I was thinking it might be like being on campus during a big game day, full Neyland Stadium. The point is, a lot of people, a lot of people. And, and among all these people, Jesus had become quite popular They're interested in Him. They're very excited about Him. They were thinking how appropriate it might be during this nationalistic holiday that the Messiah might just be here to throw off Roman rule and bring the Jewish people back exalted where they ought to be. So the religious leaders were afraid of what they might do if they take Him out. But make no doubt about it, they planned to take Him out. And so like a stalking predator, they wait but then something surprising happens. Verse 10 Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to them in order to betray Jesus to them. Someone who is close to Jesus, someone who would make it easy. For these religious leaders seeks them out. It is so much better than what they thought or were expecting. Verse 11 even tells us it made them glad. The treachery of the Son of God made them glad. It's one of the most bitter lines in the Gospel. So this is the context of what's going on. There's hatred for Jesus. There's this cheap Valuation of his life. There's this resolve to get rid of him no matter what it takes. Using money, bribery, betrayal, treachery, hunting him down, seeking opportunities. And before we move on, we just, I think it's good to stop and pause and consider and remember who's in charge here. Because when we stop and we Think about this hatred and this evil and this plotting against Jesus. We grieve in our hearts. I mean, one of the twelve, he's named Judas. He's an insider. He went to betray him. But let's not forget in God's glorious sovereignty. What man intends for evil, God intends for good. He's not out of control. He's not at risk of walking into something He doesn't fully know well already. It's important for us to remember that when we see this suffering and this hate and this evil. God is in control. And you get a a bit of a glimpse of that when you look at the middle portion of the story, the the meat of the sandwich. That's number two, a beautiful thing. Right in the midst of the hate and conspiracy against Jesus, there is a party celebrating Him. Verse 3, He's at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Oh, to be at this party. I mean, I think the closest thing I can think of that relates to this context to describe the feel of this setting is like a birthday party or maybe a retirement party where there's, it's just only close friends and family where, where all the people gathered are united by one common interest. One person. This, their love for this one main person. A setting where this one person would feel totally safe And at rest, a context of joy and and bliss. That's the feel of this party. Simon was the host. And obviously, he was a healed leper. Jewish law wouldn't have allowed people to gather in his home if he had leprosy. I mean, you think COVID prevents you from hanging out with people. Leprosy was way worse. And yet, there they are at this former leper's house, one whom Jesus probably healed. One who was surely thankful for Jesus and loved Jesus and was grateful for all that Jesus had done for him. John's account in John chapter 12, it tells us who else was there. Lazarus was there. Oh, the one whom Jesus raised from the dead. The one whom surely loved Jesus and was so grateful for who Jesus was. Jesus, or John's account also tells us that Martha was there. Martha, the best of all hospitality, the hostess above all. So no doubt they were throwing down. It was a feast. Matthew's account tells us that the disciples were there. And if the disciples were there, then Peter was there. And if Peter was there, I just have to think he was sitting by Lazarus and asking, what, what was it like? What did you feel? What did you experience? What was it like when he got back? Just all kinds of questions. You know, Peter. The point is, it was a wonderful setting. And notice who isn't there. There are no scribes. There are no chief priests. There are no Pharisees or religious leaders. There are no enemies of Jesus. It's a joyful setting. It's a safe place. It's so far removed from the outside world which is conspiring against and hating Jesus. Now, this was, this was a respite. This was rest for them. And then, <laughs> in comes this woman. Mark keeps her nameless, and she comes in, and she does this extravagant thing. You just picture this moment. So just imagine a joyful celebration. I'm sure there was just laughter and talk, and there was good food being shared and enjoyed. And at one point, all of a sudden, the room just fills with this intensely wonderful fragrance Remember, most of the people there were were men who probably hadn't bathed very often. And this room just fills with this fragrance. And if you weren't paying attention before, you were now. All conversations stop. Every eye is on this woman and what she is doing. It was profound. And it was very extravagant. One, One commentator said that that Mark just stumbles over himself to make sure we know how expensive this stuff was. The disciples value it at over 300 denarii, which is about an average year's salary today. So, in a single moment, this woman pours out tens of thousands of dollars onto Jesus. And and not only that, You have to understand, in in, in the culture, the society of that day, there's no way that this, this alabaster flask was something that this woman could have purchased. She wouldn't have been able to afford it in that day because she wouldn't have been enabled to make money like that. So no doubt, this was a family heirloom, had been passed down generation to generation, making it worth so much more than the monetary value alone. This was her financial security. This was her plan B. This was her rainy day fund, and yet she breaks it. Saving none. Exhausting all of it. Why? It was an act of honoring her Savior. It was an act of love. It was extravagant gratitude. And immediately, she's criticized. Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold and given to the poor, and they scolded her. It was customary during the Passover celebrations to give to the poor. That was part of the part of the week of celebrating. But so their response to her was, You missed it. What a waste. You you could have done so much more with that. They were angry with her. So again, put yourself in that scenario. Put yourself in her shoes. Think of the context of this party, all that was going on. I don't think that was her. I don't think that's what she was expecting. That was the response she was expecting from those around Jesus. You ever been in a situation like that? Have you ever, out of your love or care for someone, you you, you did something? You, maybe you tried to serve them in some way or give them some gift, thinking it'd be a great idea and would really bless the person and they would appreciate it. Others would appreciate it when, in fact, you realize that it's not appreciated. In fact, maybe you even made it worse. It reminded me of, of Mike's story. He, Mike Pluniac's a, another pastor here, uh, if you're a guest. He was the bald guy li- earlier. But um, he told a story a few weeks ago where he worked for a lawn company and mowed down some this lady's beautiful flowers because she he thought they were weeds he thought he was doing her a favor and it wasn't appreciated It's a, sort of a moment like that Jesus is surrounded by his closest friends those who've been with him and know him and love him most and and can you imagine what this woman must have thought when she in, in this in this loving joyful setting when she just motivated by her love for Jesus, sought to honor Him and express love for Him, and it was immediately met with indignation. How foolish she must have felt. How lonely and dejected she must have felt. How surprised she must have been. You know, Mark, Mark's making a point by keeping her unnamed. And his point is that these men, those who are closest to Jesus and around Jesus, they're kind of considered insider. They are the ones who have been with Him and should know Him best, and yet this unnamed woman who's representing someone who is outside of that, she's the only one in that moment who actually gets it right. And what we know from John's account is that this woman is Mary. Mary, sister to Martha and Lazarus. A woman whom Jesus had rescued and redeemed. A woman whom Jesus, who, who loved Jesus deeply. The disciples were angry because they thought she was missing a much greater opportunity. The greater opportunity would have been to sell this and give it to the poor to do good. But she wasted it on Jesus. They didn't realize that it was they themselves who were totally missing it. Until Jesus speaks. Verse 6. Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. How wonderful must that have been? To the Savior speak up for her, to commend her. See the heart of Jesus here. He gets in between this woman and his disciples. And his words in this moment, right here, when he spoke them, his response, it wasn't only critical for Mary to hear, for the disciples to hear. I think it's critical for us today to hear and to listen to, and to learn from. So what can we learn from what He says? A couple of things to look at. Number one, we can learn what Jesus values. So why did He call it a beautiful thing? What what made it beautiful? Well, what made it beautiful was that it was motivated by genuine love for Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you can do all kinds of things. You can give all kinds of things. You can sacrifice in all kinds of ways, but if they lack love, they are worthless. You know, Jesus did not need, he was not impressed necessarily by just really expensive ointment made from a root found in India. That's not what He was impressed with. That's not what made it beautiful. What made it beautiful was her love for Him. It was her sincere, genuine gratitude. Where in that moment, according to her means, doing what she could, her sincere sacrifice of faith, that's what made it beautiful. The Lord loves faith. It pleases Him. Like when a parent receives a gift from their child who who made it because they love their parent. I mean, it's not like that gift you're probably going to take and sell on eBay and make a lot of money. We don't have many child prodigies in that way. but, But it becomes a treasure. Why? Because it was made out of love makes it a treasure Th- this woman did what she did it was an example of what faith in the gospel does it transforms there she was full of love and faith and gratitude for her savior and she simply did what she thought was right she, she wasn't expecting to be honored or remembered recorded in scripture. She just followed what she loved. She just followed the inclination of her heart to get up in that moment, knowing what she knew, having the means that she had to go and grab that priceless heirloom and anoint the one she values most. You know, Jesus had, before this, predicted His death already. She, she knew something of that. She had listened to it, and so she got up and did what she couldn't. What was beautiful was her heart, and that's what Jesus values. I think it's important for us to consider today. The gospel changes what we value most. It defines for us what we value. The the disciples had missed it. They didn't yet fully grasp the true value of this man, but she did, and she loved him, and she just had to do something in light of what Jesus had done for her she just had to do something not to earn his favor not to win something from him or get something from him but because she had already received so much it wasn't just about the money you remember the poor widow in the temple who gave only two copper coins Christ's commendation is not about the amount. It is about the heart. A heart transforms so much that it is eager to express extravagant extravagant gratitude for Christ's extravagant love. So what motivates us to sacrifice for God like that? What motivates us to make sacrifice for God like that? I think it's realizing that Jesus calls it beautiful. James Edwards is another commentator, and he said this, According to Jesus, an act has value according to its motive and intent. And that, not its material value, that is what makes it serviceable in the kingdom of God. When one acts this way, no gift, no, not even a mere two copper coins is meaningless, and no gift, not even a year's salary, is wasted. No sacrifice you make for our Lord is wasteful. Jesus knows every one and commends you because they are beautiful In his sight, because they come out of a heart that loves him and wants to do what we can. So, I just wondered if there were some here this morning who needed to to hear that quote. And I wondered if there are some who are mindful this morning of sacrifices that you have made or that you are making, and you're just tempted to wonder if it's worth it. You're tempted to wonder if it's meaningless or if it's being wasted. And I think our text would say Jesus knows your heart. Not one of these things is wasted. Not one is meaningless. The sacrifices of your time and your energy, your affections, your serving other people, maybe your sacrifice of laying down preferences for the sake of others' goods or for the sake of unity in our church, your money, your giving, Maybe there are things that no one else sees. What are you tempted to think might be a waste or meaningless? There's not one. What I find so amazing is that Jesus invites us to live for Him and do things for Him that bring Him pleasure. Not to earn something from Him, but because we've received already. That's what motivates us. That's what He values. Mary's actions were so important that Jesus sets up this memorial for her that wherever the Gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I mean, that prophecy is being fulfilled right now as we're talking about her. J.C. Ryle is a 19th century English bishop. He says this, "...the deeds and titles of many kings and emperors and generals are as completely forgotten as if written in the sand, but the grateful act of one humble Christian woman is recorded in 150 different languages. It's 698 today. And is known all over the globe. The praise of man is but for a few days. The praise of Christ endures forever. Just pray that motivates us today. We're not invited only to be affected by this. I think we're also invited to get in on this. To be motivated to be changed by this. To be served by this. To be encouraged and inspired by this woman's example. To do beautiful things for Christ. Because our hearts love Him. That's what He values. Secondly, we can learn what caused the disciples to miss it. You know, they They didn't appreciate the extravagance of her offering. They thought her priorities were out of order. She was missing an opportunity to do good to the poor, but Jesus' response shows she got it right. He elevates devotion to Him above everything else. And I think that is crucial for us. Jesus does not correct the disciples for their desire to help the poor. In fact, He encourages it. Verse 7, you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. So yes, care for the poor. Seek to do them good. This is not an excuse or a command to ignore the problems and ills of our world. It's actually encouragement from Jesus to do good. But there is a warning. Don't misorder priorities. Maybe not for the sake of doing good in the world, miss the priority of devoting ourselves to Christ. It is not wasteful. It is not meaningless to give your life to Jesus and His mission. He gives perspective here. We will we, we always, sadly, we will always have the poor with us. Poverty will not finally be eradicated until Christ returns. But it will when Christ returns. And then this helps us. It helps us not only shape our expectations, but order our priorities. Jesus elevates allegiance to Him above everything else. But this is what happens. When we stoke the fire of our relationship and communion with Him, it will only naturally overflow into the doing good in our world. James tells us it's what true religion looks like. Here's where the disciples missed it. They, I think they got their order wrong. And so they became self-righteous. And in their self-righteousness, they were blind to just how beautiful a thing this was that she did to Jesus and even blind to the grace of God in her heart for wanting and being willing to do it. So let's be aware of that. Let, let's anchor. Let's make sure we anchor our good deeds in gratitude for and devotion to Christ. Lastly, what else we can learn? We can learn to be looking for opportunities. You know, what should the disciples have done? In that moment, when Mary's anointing Jesus, what should they have done? They should have jumped to their feet. They should have gotten in line. They should have said with Mary, yes, Lord, You are worthy of this and so much more. How can we hold back from You and who You are and all that You've done? Jesus told His disciples in this moment, you will not always have Me. Soon, Jesus would be abandoned by all. He would be crucified. He would die a criminal's death. There would be no anointing or honoring. He would be hung on a cross till He was dead. Bearing the fullness of God's wrath for our sin. And so, how much more on this side of the cross and His glorious resurrection, knowing what we know about what He did to save us, how can we not eagerly desire just to do what we can to express our gratitude and our love for our Savior who spent all that He might win us? You know what that expensive jar of ointment being just totally exhausted, totally poured out, points to Jesus shedding His blood, holding nothing back, giving all away so that He might have you. How incredible is that? Let's don't miss this opportunity. Let's thank God for calling us back, reminding us in His Word of this incredible gift of life that He's given us. And notice what's going on when Jesus says she'll be remembered as the Gospels proclaimed to the whole world. What's He talking about? He's looking beyond the cross. He's looking into the future of His message of forgiveness and life and hope and beauty going into the world and changing lives for the glory of God. And His salvation continues today as it's proclaimed by grateful people who are eager to express their delight in His extravagant love. Can you believe that's what we get to do as a people of God? It's an incredible privilege and gift. It's what the world needs. So, what can we do? What can we do? Jesus said she did what she could. What can we do? With our our money, with our time, with our serving, with our affections, with our actions. What, what's He calling us to do? I don't know. For each of us individually, just let the Holy Spirit work in your heart to make that clear. What might He be calling us to do? Not again in order to gain, but because we lived out of all we have received in Him. You know, the text begins and ends with Jesus' enemy seeking to do Him harm. What a joy it is to be a people who can live seeking daily to bring Him honor. Let's pray that the Lord would open our eyes to the opportunities we get to to have each day to do just that. To not miss those opportunities. And let's remember that on the last day for believers, what we will receive by the grace of God is commendation from our Savior celebrating the work of God in our lives for all the beautiful things He's not only called us to do, but He's enabled us to do by His Spirit for His glory and our great joy. Don't you want to get in on that more and more and more? Let's pray that the Lord would help us to do that. Father, thank You for Your Word and the example that Your Word gives us the lives that Your Word calls us to. And I pray, Lord, that You would help us by Your grace enable us to see the things, the opportunities You give us to express our gratitude to You in our lives. Lord, make us grateful people for all we have in Christ, I pray in His name. Amen.